teaching this week and the third week, and she'll be teaching the other weeks. And we are really, really excited to get to know you all. Who all has done one of the Prov Road Bible studies before? Raise your hand. Yay, I'm glad you're back. Okay, that's awesome. Who is this their first time? Awesome. Love seeing all the new faces. Well, we are really, really glad you're here. Before we kick off, I'm going to go ahead and open us in prayer, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you just for bringing all of us into this room tonight. Thank you for your word that we get to study and just glean wisdom and truth from. I pray that as we study this together, that we would be led and guided by your spirit um, and that you would be illuminating truths to us that we need to know. Um, each of us individually is um, in different situations and going through different things. I pray that you would meet all of us where we're at and that we would all leave here changed and transformed in some way by the power of your word, Lord. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. I'm glad that you guys are here. For those of you guys who have done a study with us before, some of this is going to start to feel more familiar to you because we tend to start studies the same way. We do the same exercises to kind of get us into the text. And so hopefully the more studies that you do, the more comfortable you're going to feel with it and be able to translate that to when you start to study other books on your own. I'm going to go over a few goals that I have for the study before we start to jump in. First, and obviously, I hope that we can leave here with a really good and thorough understanding of the book of Colossians, okay? That should be clear. I hope that as we study it also, that we are changed and transformed by it, that it's not just knowledge we're learning, but that, that the Holy Spirit is using that knowledge to work in our lives. So that's my number one goal from the study. My second goal is that as we study, that you guys will be able to take these tools that we're using, kind of the way that we approach scripture, and it's going to equip you to better approach other books of the Bible that you study on your own later. I think a good Bible study should help you to feel more equipped to study on your own and not feel like you just are always needing another Bible study to be able to grow. They should be equipping you. So that's my second goal. My third goal, um, this is kind of a new one as opposed to other, other ones we've done, is that I have a goal that we are going to leave here more confident in our ability to step back and to see the bigger picture in what we're reading. Kind of in the church at large, not Providence Road necessarily, but Big C Church at large, I think that we've kind of gotten into this habit where we've been trained to take scriptures and look at isolated passages and isolated verses, and we learn those really well. We're trained to kind of pick out things that stand out and get a lot of meaning from those things, and that's great. Even like when I was in college, a lot of the Bible study methods that I learned had to do with take every single word in that verse and emphasize it and glean everything you can from that word, and that's awesome, and it's vital, and we should do it, but the problem is we're so good at doing those things, but there's a whole vital step that comes before that that we tend to skip. And that's just the question of asking, like, what's even going on, like, around this passage? What's the bigger picture here? Like, how many people in here know the verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 4? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. Who knows that verse? Like, who feels like you know that pretty well? Who in here could tell me what the book of 1 Corinthians is about? Anybody? That's hard, right? That's a hard one, right? What about uh, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Who is very familiar with the fruit of the Spirit passage? Probably most of us, I would say. Who here could tell me what the book of Galatians is about? I don't see a single hand. So, so you see the disconnect here? We've gotten really good at analyzing specific portions of Scripture, but we're not very good at stepping back and saying, what's this book even about? And that's dangerous because that can lead us to take portions of Scripture and make them mean what we want them to mean, and we start to misapply them. 
I have a six-year-old son, and he's in kindergarten, and he's learning to read, and it's pretty much the cutest thing ever. Um, and one of the things that they do in school every week is they do storyboards. So his teacher will read a story to them, and then she gives them a piece of paper, and it has three squares across. And each of the squares has a different question that he, they can't really write yet, so they draw a picture to answer it. And then they kind of do their best to write some, you know, letters underneath. And so every time she reads them a story, what do you think the first square is that they are supposed to answer? What is the story about? Okay? And so the idea is that this is so vital to our basic comprehension when we're reading to be able to answer what is the story about, but that's the first thing that my kindergarten son is learning how to do. And so it's sad, though, that our church culture has kind of started to, you know, neglect that part of studying the Bible to the point that we all know isolated portions really, really well, but it is really hard for us when we have to look back at the bigger picture and ask, what's this really about? So, um, you know, how many of you guys hated the paraphrasing and the outlining part of the homework? Who hated that? I think a lot of y'all are lying. I think everybody hates that part, okay? It's the part that I get the most pushback on. And even when we do our discussion time, I always start our discussion time with saying, can you paraphrase the portion of the text that we're studying? Just put it in your own words and paraphrase it. And people struggle with it so much. It's every, I mean, even on the um, you know, surveys at the end, it's the part that people tend to say, I don't like that. <laughs> and so because it's hard, and that's just because we're stretching and flexing a muscle that we're not used to using, and that just means we need to practice it more. So for those of you who complained about it and hoped I would stop doing it, I'm very sorry. We're going to keep doing it. Um, so, But I know that it's hard, and I know we struggle, and I've observed lots of different groups try to do it at different times, and I think I've figured, I've started to notice what I think is happening. We're so trained to take isolated verses and to draw meaning from them that when I ask you to paraphrase something, your mind automatically goes there because that's what you know. So you automatically look at details and you automatically try to draw meaning and that's confusing because it's not really the question that I'm asking. So just to kind of give a little tip so you can understand maybe how to shift your mindset, <clears throat> imagine that me and you are having a conversation and I say, yeah, Man, I really need to go to the grocery store. I'm just out of so many different things. Um, my kid is eating bananas all day long, so I need to get bananas. He just cannot stop eating them. And um, I also want to make some muffins. Maybe I'll make some banana muffins, and so maybe I should get extra bananas for that. And I also need to figure out what I'm going to cook for dinner this week, and I need to get some vegetables. So say that's our conversation. Now say you go to a friend, and they say, hey, what was Nicole telling you about? You wouldn't go to that person and be like, well, she talked a lot about bananas. That's not really answering her question. That doesn't give her information that makes sense to her because then she would be like, what do you mean she's talking about bananas? Like, does she really like bananas? Like, is she neglecting other food groups because she's eating so many bananas? She can start, you can easily start to draw the wrong meaning because you don't have the framework. What you would say to that friend is, she was giving me her grocery list. That's the framework that the details fit into, okay? So do you see the difference? Both of those statements are true. Yes, I did talk a lot about bananas. That's true. But that's not the helpful information to give you the big picture of what's happening there. The big picture is I was giving you a grocery list. So we're going to take that, and I want you guys to open up your homework. We're doing a long time on this third goal, aren't we? But it's really important. So I want you to open up your homework to your outline, okay? And we're going to take that same idea, big picture versus details, and I'm going to walk you through what these answers should look like, okay? Because I know that this is a really, really tough part. <clears throat> Okay, let's see here. The first section that I had you guys do was verses, what was it? 15 through 23 in chapter 1. Okay, because I did the first two for you as a little um, helper. Now, I'm guessing a lot of you guys might have struggled here, and you wanted to zoom in on things, and you might have tried to say things like, well, it's talking a lot about Christ being the firstborn. That's what this is about. Or it's talking a lot about Christ being the image of God. 
Now those are true statements, but those are details. Those are the details within a bigger context, okay? That's like saying it's talking about bananas. But what I'm looking for here is the bigger picture in this whole section, and what is happening in this section is Paul is teaching the reader about who Jesus is. Everything else is a detail within that bigger context. So this is a section where Paul is teaching the reader about who Jesus is. So do you see the difference there? It's much simpler than we tend to try to make it, okay? He wants to make sure they have an accurate knowledge of Christ because they're a new church. We're going to kind of get into more about what Colossae is like. But they're a new church. He wants them to have an accurate knowledge. So the big picture framework for that first blank is he was teaching them about Jesus. The next section, chapter 1, verses 24 through 2, 7. Some of you, I'm guessing, might have wanted to jump to meaning and say something like, this section is about why Christ is worth suffering. And that's true. We can look at what Paul says about his ministry and suffering for Christ and draw that meaning from it. That's a true statement. But again, that's the meaning that we drew from a detail within the bigger picture. So what I'm looking for here is more basic than that. What I'm looking for here is that Paul's telling the readers about his own ministry. That's what this section's about. Okay? It's a lot simpler when you kind of zoom out. Then you're getting the framework that you need. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 23. There's a ton of details that you can get bogged down on in this part. But the basic thing that's happening here is that he's warning them against false teaching. I tried to kind of give you a little clue by pointing you to those three verses that talk about it because it's easy. Paul's notorious for these long, um, intricate, 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 I can't say that word, um, sentences. And so it's easy to lose that. But he's just basically warning them against false teaching. Chapter 3, 1 through 4, 6, here he's just giving them instructions on how to live, okay? He's shifted thoughts. He's just giving them instructions on how to live. And finally, in 4, 7 through 4, 18, he's just updating them about people and saying goodbye. So do you see the difference between being able to zoom out and say, this is the big picture structure of what's happening here? If I were to paraphrase the book of Colossians, it would sound something like Paul wrote a letter where he wanted to tell people about the details of who Jesus is. He wanted to update them on his ministry. He wanted to tell them how to live and warn them against false teaching. And then you can kind of from that have a framework to know when you do get to those specific passages and verses, then you know what to do with them because you know the context they fit in. And you're not going to kind of go on these rabbit trails that aren't accurate. Does that make sense? So I hope that that's helpful for you because, again, I know I spent a lot of time on this, but it was by far the, the thing that people had the hardest time with in the previous study. So I just wanted to try to set you all up, lift some of that weight off your shoulders if you were kind of feeling panicked when you looked at that outline, and just help you to see that it is more um, simple than our, we tend to make it because we kind of we're trying to use the wrong skills there. And hopefully the more we do it, the better we'll get at it. So on that note, since we've been talking a lot about the importance of reading comprehension and having the right frame of mind, um, and just how it's so vital to make sure that we know what it is that we're getting into. Um, we are going to do an exercise to start us off called reading the envelope. Now, I know I kind of have a page in your homework that said reading the envelope. You might be wondering, what does that mean? What is reading the envelope? <clears throat> if you've done a study with us before, you should remember. The idea is when you get a letter in the mail, there's a lot of information on that envelope that tells you how to posture your mind for what's inside. You're kind of ready for what you're going to read based on what's on the envelope, okay? We kind of can tell from the envelope who the letter is to, who it's from. We can see on the postmark the date that it was written, where it came from. You can even tell from the type of envelope, like what the type of letter is going to be, kind of the genre, if you will. So you can tell the difference 
between a bill and like a birthday card. And so your mind is ready for what you're about to open. <clears throat> so this reading the envelope exercise, this is something I've learned at a lot of conferences. This is not my exercise or idea, but it's so helpful that I do it anytime I'm going to study the book of the Bible. Um, you take those same questions that you would learn from a piece of mail and you say, okay, I'm going to ask those about this book of the Bible so that I have the right framework before I start to try to study it. So what we're going to spend the next little while doing is we're going to read um, the envelope for the book of Colossians together, and we're going to do it with as many details as possible to give us the best framework possible in which to study it in the coming weeks. Because if we just kind of go through and say, who wrote it? Paul, who did they write it to? The Colossians. Well, that's just some arbitrary names, an arbitrary date if we kind of figure out the date. But we still don't have a framework or a context of what was happening during that time, who Paul is. So I'm going to try to fill in a lot of details for you so that when we do start to get in the text, you're postured and ready for it. You know the context and you know what we're getting into. Does that make sense? Are you ready? Okay. <clears throat> so if you want to open your notes, you can either flip to your reading the envelope page or you can go to your teaching notes, whatever you feel more comfortable with. But we're going to start with who wrote the book and when. Now I'm combining these two because in all the backstory I'm going to give you, it's easier to tell them together. Um, so we know that Paul was the author. He states it in that first um, verse. Um, along with Timothy, there's kind of some debate. How much did Paul actually write? How much did Timothy write? There's a lot of debate about the author. But regardless of where you fall on that, um, we are supposed to see Paul as the authorship is attributed to Paul. Um, we know that he wrote it during one of his imprisonments. And so most scholars think that it was probably his second Roman imprisonment, which was around 60 A.D., so Paul is the author. He wrote this while imprisoned around 60 AD. What do we know about him, and what do we know about what was happening leading up to that time? Because, again, we want more than just an arbitrary name and an arbitrary date. So I'm going to kind of give you some of the history leading up to this. You guys probably are familiar with most of this, but you may not have ever heard it just told as one fluid story. So hopefully this will help to kind of, you know, maybe fill in some gaps for you. So the death and resurrection of Jesus was in 30 AD. <clears throat> 50 days later is when the Holy Spirit comes. This is Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit comes down. People start speaking in tongues and crazy things happen. And then um, Peter speaks this um, sermon that leads to about 3,000 people getting baptized. Okay, And this is kind of the birth of the early church. Now, at this time, the early church, it's just in Jerusalem. It's all very localized and central. And we read about this early church in the book of Acts. We see also in the book of Acts that there is conflict and persecution from the get-go. From the very beginning, this new church is getting persecuted, and this persecution begins to escalate. And it escalates all the way up to where Christians begin to get killed and murdered. And so we kind of see the first Christian who gets murdered is Stephen. We, we, most of you guys are probably familiar with the story of Stephen being stoned. Um, Paul, who's the author of this book, was present at Stephen's stoning. And at this time, though, he was actually a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee named Saul. So he is there. He began to play a major role in persecuting Christians. And so he, um, with the early church, he was looking for Christians, um, having them imprisoned. He was having them killed. He was kind of a major figure in this persecution of all of these Christians. Um, <clears throat> up until this time, like we said, it had mainly existed in Jerusalem, but the persecution grew and grew to the point that it just became so dangerous that the Christians all fled and they all scattered out of Jerusalem. And this is kind of, along with it, a natural outcome of that is that the gospel is going to spread as well. So God kind of uses that persecution um, for good in a way. So the church flees and scatters. Paul, uh, Saul, at the time, Saul um, has been ravaging the church, going door to door. So he follows. He says, you guys are going to leave while I'm coming after you. So Paul leaves to go and follow these Christians who have all scattered. And he's on his way to a place called Damascus. 
in order to find more Christians to persecute. This was in around 34 AD, so about four years after the death of Christ. This has been four years of persecution leading up to this point. On the way to Damascus, he has this conversion experience where he hears this voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus who are you are persecuting, but rise, enter the city, and it shall be told what you must do. So at the time, he loses his sight, he hears this voice, and then he, and then of course, he has no choice. So he goes into you know, the city, Damascus, and he waits. Well, in Damascus, there is a Christian there named Ananias. And God, in a vision, tells Ananias, hey, Saul's here. I want you to go and lay hands on him. Can you imagine being Ananias? So Ananias knew exactly who Saul was and exactly what Saul did to Christians. And I'm sure he was terrified. Um, but he's obedient and faithful, and he does. He goes and finds Saul. He lays hands on him, <clears throat> and Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. Scales fall from his eyes, and he is able to see again um, physically, but also see for the first time spiritually. And then he becomes one of the most influential followers of Christ in the New Testament. And so he, um, his name changes to Paul, and then that is kind of where most of his ministry that we read about starts after this. So then he stays with the disciples. He begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. He spends several years just learning and proclaiming Christ in the synagogues. Um, during this time, Christianity is still spreading, and Herod begins persecuting Christians. Some of the apostles begin to be killed and imprisoned. And then in around 44 or 45 AD, Paul begins his missionary journey. So 10 years after becoming a Christian, he starts to travel, and he begins planting churches all over modern-day Turkey and Greece. As he's doing this, he's also training other people to do it as well. And so he kind of has these disciples that are learning how to plant churches along with him. Um, as he does this, the persecution always follows. There's always difficulties with these new churches. And so Paul often writes letters to the new churches to correct the false teaching, to give encouragements in the midst of persecution, to teach them how to live, um, etc. So the letter to the Colossians that we're going to be studying is written about 15 years after he began his missionary journeys planting churches. Um, so that's 25 years after his conversion. And so what that means is that he had been doing this a long time. He had planted a lot of churches, and he had had a lot of experience to see just what young churches were facing, what was a problem for young churches, and what was most effective for them to be able to combat these difficulties. So because this is so late in his ministry, we kind of get a little bit of a gold mine from Paul here in Colossians. We get to kind of reap the, the fruit of all of his labor of these 25 years of being a Christian. <clears throat> So we know the author and the date now. What about the genre? <clears throat> How many of you guys are familiar with that word genre? Basically, it's just like, what type of literature is this? So in the Bible, we have lots of different types of literature. We have some books that are meant to be read, like a history book that's historical narrative. We have some books that are letters, like this one. Um, we have some books that are wisdom, that are kind of to tell you how to live. So knowing a genre of a book helps you to know how it's meant to be read. So this is an epistle, which just means it's a letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a specific church facing specific challenges um, for a specific reason, okay? Paul had never actually been to Colossae. Um, the church there was actually started by a man named Epaphras. Now, Epaphras was one of those disciples that we mentioned that Paul took along with him, was teaching him how to plant churches. Um, so Epaphras hears the gospel from Paul, learns from him for a while, and he's from Colossae. So he goes home to Colossae, brings the gospel with him, and he starts the church there. <clears throat> 
So most people think that at some point, as this church in Colossae is getting formed, it's facing some struggles and some difficulties. So Epaphras goes and visits Paul where Paul is in prison, and he get, basically shares what's going on in Colossae, and then basically most people think that there's some false teaching. I'm not going to get very much into the false teaching. Madison's going to cover a lot of that next week, but there's a lot of debate. Was this false teaching like totally permeated in the church? Is this just the potential of false teaching that's kind of looming around the outside? There's a lot of debate on that that we'll get into next week, but wherever that was, there, I think everybody agrees that there was some threat, at least, of false teaching. And Epaphras is telling Paul about this, and that's what prompts Paul to write this letter to the church at Colossae. <clears throat> Another thing that's important to know about this letter is that it is basically known as having the most robust Christology found anywhere in the New Testament. Now, Christology, that's just a theological word that refers to the study about who Jesus is and what he has done, okay? So it's basically just knowing about the person and the work of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> Paul gives a lot of time giving careful details to the church at Colossae about the nature and the work of Jesus. And that makes sense because this is a new church filled with new believers and a city full of non-Christian beliefs and ideologies. And so the best way to protect them from being led astray from false teachings is to what? Fill them with true teachings, right? I've heard it said that the best way to protect yourselves against lies is to be armed with the truth. And so that seems like what Paul is doing here. So that's a little bit about this epistle, kind of the format of the letter. What about the audience? What do we know about Colossae? Um, well, this letter, it was written to the church at Colossae. Colossae was a city in the Lycus River Valley. You have a map on the last page. If you are a visual person and like to see it, it's there for your reference. Um, now, a little bit about Colossae. A few hundred years before this letter was written, Colossae was a very large, very important city. It was kind of at the intersection of two major highways. And so it had a lot of traffic and attracted a lot of people from a lot of places. So as a result, it was a very big eclectic mix of different types of um, worship, different types of people worshiping different types of gods. You kind of had a little bit of everything there. Um, <clears throat> at some point, one of those highways moved and went through a different city, so Colossae began to decline in importance, and it kind of um, it declined really to the point where I think one commentator said that it was the least important church to what any which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. Okay, so this was not a big important church anymore in a big important city. It was a little church in a very small, unimportant city, probably the least important church in the least important city that Paul wrote to that we have in the Bible. And I love that because it shows that Paul really cared about helping new churches, making sure the gospel was taking root um, in the right way. He wasn't worried about how big the church was or how important the city. Um, <clears throat> he just wanted the, the gospel to take root. And shortly after this letter is written, like maybe within a year or two, Colossae is actually devastated by an earthquake and is completely destroyed and demolished. Um, they eventually, it was eventually rebuilt, but it just never, ever regained very much prominence. Um, so just a little bit about Colossae. And that brings us to the last question where we're going to zoom out even more. Okay, we are giving you a lot of context here tonight. Um, where does this fit into the overarching biblical narrative? <clears throat> now, I'm going to answer this question. Basically, by using the knowledge, for those of you who have done studies before, with what we learned in the Hosea study and what we learned in the Judges study. I know not everybody in here did that, but the reason I'm doing this is a lot of times, um, like I've mentioned, we, like to, we tend to learn things in isolation. It's hard to know the bigger picture. And the more that I study the Bible, have you guys ever seen those crime shows where there's like a big wall and there's pictures and note cards and they're all attached by little strings? So that it's like so that you can look at it and visualize. This attaches to here and this points to this. 
Well, I feel like the more I read the Bible, that's how I picture it in my mind because as I study a book and I study another book, I start to see the strings of how those two books are connected. And it's like this map that's constantly getting filled in. So I feel like it's important for us as we study books together as a church to always be aware how do these all fit together so that we are filling in gaps and filling in that large map in our mind. So that's kind of what I'm going to do for us right now for the next couple of minutes, okay? All right, so the Bible, <clears throat> I know we're doing a lot tonight. We kind of had to cram two weeks into one week worth, so I'm giving you a lot of information. I'm sorry about this. Um, the Bible is divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. Most of us probably um, are pretty familiar with that. So in the Old Testament is when we studied Judges and Hosea. So I'm going to kind of camp out there for a little bit. If you did the Hosea study, <clears throat> you'll remember that when God takes his people and frees them from Egypt, he kind of um, takes them and he says, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. I'm going to bring you into this land flowing with milk and honey, okay? <clears throat> did I say Hosea or Judges? Which one am I starting with? We're going to start with Hosea, okay? So he takes them out of Egypt and he says he makes a covenant with them, okay? If you did the Hosea study, you'll remember that this was a conditional covenant. So this wasn't a covenant that could never be broken. This was a covenant that depended on the Israelites fulfilling their end. So God says, okay, this is my covenant. Here's these Ten Commandments plus a bunch of other ceremonial laws and rules and customs. These are all things that you have to do to fulfill your end of the covenant. And then if you do this, you will be my people and I will be your God. We learned in the Hosea study that hundreds of years go by with them being very unfaithful to the covenant, farther and farther from the Lord, to the, far, to the point that God finally says, okay, I'm going to have to go ahead and do what I said I would do, and I'm going to have to end this covenant with you all. He essentially divorces Israel <clears throat> and has to end that covenant. So what we have now in the New Testament with people who maybe have a Jewish background is they have this hundreds and hundreds of year history where what they know is this covenant, this Mosaic covenant that God established with them where they were expected to follow certain rules and customs. That's what we learned in the Hosea study. What about the judges study? In the judges study, we learned that at the same time when they go to Mount Sinai, God tells them, I'm going to lead you into a land flowing with milk and honey. And what I want you to do is I want you to wipe out everybody there because you are to be a people set apart. And I don't want you to be living among these other people worshiping other gods because if you do, you're going to worship these other gods and you are not going to be worshiping me fully. And my worship is going to be distorted. But what do they do? They go into Canaan and they don't wipe everybody out. They begin to live among all of these foreign people. And sure enough, within one generation, they are worshiping the foreign gods. They are intermarrying. They're starting to mix pagan worship with the worship that God instructs them to do, and everything gets distorted. So now, <clears throat> this is kind of the two like different things that we have going on here in the New Testament. And the New Testament comes along. This old covenant has been has been broken by Israel time and time again. It is null and void. It is no longer in existence. God with Jesus in the New Testament is establishing a new covenant. Okay. Now, this covenant with Jesus is not conditional like the Mosaic covenant. It is an unconditional covenant, which means when you enter into this new covenant and you become a follower of Christ, there is not conditions put upon you. They cannot be broken after that, okay? God promises that we are going to be in that covenant for eternity. Now, what's happened, though, is for the new early Christians is they exist in this world where they are still in that same land where they are surrounded by other people groups, okay? They're living among other people, worshiping other gods. So they have two different forces at work against them. We know from the Hosea study that they have been through hundreds and hundreds of years where they 
only knew this one covenant. So if there's a new church and it's in an area with a lot of Jewish people who are, you know, kind of the ancestry of the Israelites, those are going to be people who have a hard time putting aside Jewish customs. So they are going to really cling to things like circumcision and eating certain ways, okay, because that is basically all they've known for hundreds of years. All the other thing is for these early churches that maybe live in areas that have more Gentiles that are non-Jewish people, they're living in this area because they did not drive everybody out. They're living in an area surrounded by other foreign people worshiping foreign gods. So the other opposing force is that there's all these people around them worshiping other gods. Imagine being an early church, and some of them had more Jewish people around them. Some of them had more Gentiles. But either way, you have a mix of those, okay? And so to have be an early church and to not have hundreds of history, church history, Christian, like, post-Christ like we do. We have hundreds of years of history to draw back on and to know what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Um, they don't have that. We have the New Testament that teaches us how to be a follower of Christ. They did not have that. It was very confusing for an early church to exist in this world where they have people, the Gentile culture around them that worships other gods, the Jewish culture around them that's still clinging to the covenant. Both of those are kind of feeding in and speaking in and telling them what they should look like, but they're trying to live this new way, this new covenant, and they have no idea how to do it. Okay, So it's a very difficult position to be in, and that's why there's so many epistles, so many letters written to churches that time to help them learn what does it look like to walk in this new way because they've only known these other two things. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so that's kind of the greater gospel narrative. Um, we have a solid framework now. We've spent a lot of time making sure we have a solid framework. We're going to spend the remainder of our time, um, teaching time tonight, kind of looking at the very beginning of the text, okay? So if you want to go ahead and open up to your, um, you can either use your Bible or in the back of your book, we have printed it out for you. And that's for the purpose of you can just mark it up this way and write your own notes and things like that. It's super helpful. But we're going to kind of just go, um, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 23 today. Um, now, most Greek letters during this time followed a certain structure or a certain format. Um, typically, a Greek letter, it would start with um, kind of like a greeting where the author basically states who he is and who his audience is. Then there would be a short little part where they kind of give some thanksgiving for the audience, whoever they're writing it to. They want to tell them that they're thankful for them. That was kind of customary. It wasn't in all letters, but it was in most and then there's the body of the letter, and then there's kind of a conclusion. Okay, so Paul, he kind of takes this same structure in most of his letters that he writes. So we can see, I'm going to go ahead and start by reading verses 1 and 2, because this is that first portion of the letter. This is the greeting, so this is going to be kind of an easy part. Uh, we see in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. All right, it's a pretty straightforward greeting. We could pick apart a lot of stuff there, but for the sake of time, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But I do want to mention that um, the Greek word he uses here for brothers um, is adelphoi. And so the idea behind this, it's not, it's kind of more accurately translated um, brothers and sisters. This isn't really like a gender specific word, but it's kind of the literal um, translation has to do with like a second home. So it's a kind of a really, in, like a really um, caring way to kind of call somebody family. So it's basically, he's making the point to say, you guys are my family. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay. So this is a very warm welcome and a warm greeting. So we already mm -hmm. know from the way he starts his greeting that this is not a letter of rebuke. This is a warm and caring letter where he's wanting to care for them and make sure that they are getting off on the right foot. 
Okay, so now we're going to enter into a longer part of the text. This is the Thanksgiving portion. Um, in a lot of Paul's letters, he gives a very simple and easy Thanksgiving um, portion of his letter, but there's a few of his letters that he gives a really complex Thanksgiving, and this is one of those. So this is a very kind of hard-to-follow Thanksgiving passages. So I'm going to read the whole thing. It's easy to get lost in, but then we're going to go back, and I'm going to kind of point out two different sections that I want us to focus on. So let's go ahead and read that Thanksgiving section together. We're going to read verses 3 through 14. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. <clears throat> of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, that was a long Thanksgiving section. It's easy to kind of forget what, what section we're in here. He kind of says a lot. So I want to point out just a couple of things about this section that I think are important to notice. We know from all the prep work that we've done tonight, and maybe in your homework too, that Paul is writing this letter to help steer them away from some false teachings. We also know that Epaphras is the one who planted the church there, and he's primarily been the one to bring them the gospel message. So we're going to look at a part that's going to show us that right off the bat, before we're even in the main body of the text, we're still in that introductory Thanksgiving portion, Paul is already being incredibly intentional in how he words things. Look at verse 3 with me. <clears throat> He makes a point to remind them that the gospel that they have heard is the word of truth. That word truth is very important because if you're listening to false teachings, that is the opposite of truth, okay? He's reminding them, those, all these other things you're hearing from other places, that's not truth. The gospel is truth, okay? He brings this even further, and he makes the point to tell them, in the whole world, this gospel is bearing fruit, just like it has among you. So he's trying to remind them. This gospel, it's true, and I can prove it. Look at the fruit the gospel bears. Look at the fruit that it has bared in you. It's bearing that same fruit everywhere it goes. Can you say the same thing about these false teachings, okay? So already, he's reminding them in a very casual way, the gospel is truth. It's bearing fruit everywhere. Also, something that he does here early on is he's um, pointing out that Epaphras is his beloved fellow servant because who's the one who's brought them the gospel truth? If it's Epaphras, okay? So if they're tempted to not believe that gospel is sufficient for them and it's all that they need, and they're tempted to believe these other false truths, they need to be reminded that Epaphras is trustworthy. He's a trustworthy source, and they can believe his teachings. And so they would have all known who Paul was, 
And so if Paul were to come there and speak these words, it would have been very easy for them to believe him because he had a lot of influence. People knew who he was. So for Paul to kind of give Epaphras his stamp of approval is giving a lot of validity and credibility to what Epaphras is saying to them. Okay, so Paul's being very intentional with the way he's casually wording these statements. Okay, he's really setting them up to remind them um, of really all of these true things. Okay, we're going to go ahead and look at another part of this Thanksgiving section, um, verses 9 through 12. Now, if you noticed, this is four verses, but it's all one sentence. This is a really long, really confusing sentence. And a lot of times when we have these long sentences filled with all sorts of descriptive words and phrases, it's hard to, to really track what is this sentence saying. So sometimes it's helpful to strip away some of the extra descriptive things and just ask, what are the bones of this sentence? So that's what we're going to do in verses 9 through 12. <clears throat> I want you to look with me. There's a couple of words that I want you to circle if you have this page. I want you to circle the word knowledge in verse 9. I want you to circle the word or the part that says so as to walk. So as to walk. Circle the part that says strengthened with all power in verse 11. And then the end of verse 11, circle endurance, patience, and joy. <clears throat> and I'm going to walk you through this, but this is going to help you give a visual as we, as we talk through this. So in this sentence, this is kind of the bones. This is the bones of the sentence when we take away a lot of the descriptive phrases. Okay, so the first thing that he wants is for them to be filled with all knowledge. That is the very first thing. He's saying, I am asking, I have not ceased to pray that you would be filled with knowledge. Knowledge of God, knowledge of his will, knowledge and understanding. Well, this is interesting because as soon as we get into the body of the text, I don't know if, you've, if you picked up on this when we outlined, the first thing that Paul does is he spends a chapter and a half giving them knowledge, right? So he's saying here, we're kind of going to see a little mini outline of the whole letter. He's basically telling them and prepping them for what the whole letter is going to be about in this sentence, okay? So he's saying, I want to fill you with no I want you to be filled with knowledge. And then in the body, he's going to do just that. Okay, the next part I had you circle is so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So what's this knowledge for? It's so that you'll live differently. It's so that you'll live a certain way. We'll look at the whole book as a whole. After we have a chapter and a half of him giving them knowledge about Jesus, he's then going to spend a whole chapter telling them how that knowledge should make them live. He's going to give them instructions on how to live, okay? So he's saying, I want you to have knowledge so that you'll walk and live a certain way. And then verse 11 is so sweet because he makes the point to say, this is not going to be in your strength. This is not just because you're trying hard to do it, but you're going to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So to give them encouragement, this is going to be the work of the Holy Spirit within you, okay? So you're going to be filled with knowledge so you can live a certain way, and the Holy Spirit's going to give you the power and the strength to do that. And then finally, um, what is kind of the end product of all of this? endurance because what were they facing false teachings that threatened to pull them all away from the faith that's what false teaching does it takes people away from faith in the lord and so he's saying i want you guys to make it to the end i want you to endure in your faith i don't want these false teachings to pull you away i want you to have correct knowledge so that you will walk in the way that is pleasing to the lord the spirit's going to strengthen you to do that and the end product that we hope comes of all of that is that you are going to endure in the faith and stand up against these difficulties, including these false teachings that you're facing, okay? What a beautiful sentence this is and how amazing and how this sets us up for the rest of the body that we're about to get into right now, okay? 
So that brings us to the body of the text. Now is where the real meat starts, okay? So we're going to be um, in, chapter, in verses 15 through 20 now. So you can go ahead and flip to verse 15. Um, <clears throat> you saw in the homework that this is actually a hymn or a poem, this portion of the text, okay? Commentators are kind of don't really know. They just speculate, like, did Paul just write this whole thing from the beginning? Or maybe he might have even taken, a, like, a Jewish hymn that didn't talk about Christ, and he might have inserted Christ into the hymn to make a point um, for them. So there's lots of different ways this hymn could have come about. But um, it's, it's one of those things that um, this hymn is so packed full of so much theological truth. It's kind of considered like, um, this is um, kind of like the high point of the whole book. And it, we could spend weeks unpacking just this hymn and, like, not even do it justice. So, obviously, we're not going to be able to tackle it and tackle all the portions of this hymn like we really could. So, what I'm going to do, because going along with our theme, is we're going to zoom out. And we're going to try to ask what is kind of the main thing that's happening in this hymn. Um, this is kind of the most famous passage in the whole letter. And one commentator even said that this is one of the Christological high points of the entire New Testament. Um, Colossians is kind of famous and known for having an incredibly developed and high Christology. Remember, Christology is the study of who Jesus is and what he's done. Um, so possibly, Colossians might possibly have the most detailed and advanced Christology in the entire New Testament. So it really is a gem. It really is a goldmine. If you really want to understand who Jesus is, Colossians is the place to go. Remember, this is later in Paul's ministry. He's had a lot of time to develop his knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is in light of all the things that he um, studies in the Old Testament and kind of he is able to develop this high Christology because it's so late in his ministry. So let's go ahead and read this hymn and then we'll try to take a little bit of a um, bird's eye view of it, okay? So starting in verse 15. <clears throat> he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Guys, that's a lot. That is a lot of different statements about Jesus. It's a lot to take in. And if you're like me, whenever I read this, it tends to all blur together. And it's hard for me to really focus and narrow in on, like, what is the significance of all this? Because it's so much packed into such a short amount of time. So, like I said, we're going to not be able to focus on these individual parts today, but we are going to zoom out so that whenever, if you guys, as we go through the study, it would be beneficial for you to look back at this hymn and start to draw on on these little individual things. But I want us to zoom out a bit and look at the hymn as a whole. In this hymn, we have two basic stanzas. We kind of see two different things. Um, the first half of the hymn, the first stanza kind of starts with Christ being the image of the invisible God. Um, <clears throat> so we kind of have the first stanza. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's where the first stanza starts. The second stanza is where it says, Christ is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. And this is kind of referring to the initiation of the new covenant, where we're all going to be raised um, to new life in Christ. We saw in that first stanza, all things are created through him. And in the second stanza, we see that he has supremacy in all things. Okay, so we have these two different stanzas that, stanzas that kind of seem to have a different emphasis, right? 
um, the first big picture thing I want us to draw from these verses is that Paul, in doing this, is giving a really big and full picture of the sufficiency of Christ. He's starting all the way at creation, okay? And he's going all the way up to, like, this new um, being, like, this new life um, that Christ offers, okay? So he's giving this broad picture of everything. A lot of scholars think that the false teaching that was going on was leading people to believe that they needed something else in addition to Jesus, like, Jesus wasn't enough. They had to have Jesus plus something else, plus some supernatural experience or whatever it is. Madison's going to go into a lot of these different things next week of what these false teachings could have been. But the fact that Paul is so broad in his description of all that Jesus reigns and rules over, starting with creation, leading all the way to present day, he basically is eliminating the possibility of believers needing anything other than Christ. So whatever false teaching they're believing, it has to be eliminated from this verse because this this him is all-encompassing. It is showing that Christ rules and reigns from creation until now. Um, and so that's kind of the first thing I want us to know big picture. Uh, the second thing I want us to see is that a lot of what he tells them about Jesus are things that they would have up to this point already known to be true about God the Father. Um, early Christians, even if they did not come from a Jewish background, the only literature that they had to start learning about this new faith, this new following Jesus, um, now remember Jesus came from the Jewish faith, and so they would be able, to, they would have been looking at Jewish um, scripture and history to start making sense of kind of this, um, what it looks like to follow Jesus. That would have been all that they had. They didn't have the New Testament yet. So they would have been familiar with God the Father creating the heaven and the earth and holding all things together. And they would have seen the power of God and all of that. Um, <clears throat> so when they see how Paul is now linking Jesus to everything that God the Father did in creation, it's basically showing them that what they knew to be true of the power of God the Father is also true of Jesus. He is basically showing that Jesus is as powerful as they would have, that they would have already known that God was. So the same power that God demonstrated in creation also belongs to Jesus. And because of that, they can be assured that clearly Jesus is all sufficient for them as they enter into this new creation as believers, okay? Um, so one more thing I want us to notice about this hymn um, is that Paul is very specific and kind of when we pull back some of these different um, um, kind of descriptions and stuff, he's, um, he's very specific about the things that Jesus is ruling and reigning over and that he has authority over. He says, he says things like visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, on earth or in heaven. Um, so he's got all these specific things that he wants to point out in this hymn that Jesus is um, reigning and ruling over. A lot of people say that this gives us a lot of clues about what the false teachings were because he's saying this specifically to combat those false teachings. And so just have that in mind in the next week as you do your homework and you start to kind of get into this next week with Madison that this, um, there's a lot of clues about what these false teachings could have been when you look at what Paul is specifically narrowing in on in this um, hymn. So I think that... Um, there's so much to unpack in this hymn. We're barely able to scratch the surface of it, but I hope you remember that above all, for a new church that is facing potential false teaching, the one thing that Paul wanted them to understand was the complete sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ, okay? That's what he knew would be the best thing to help them identify falsehood when they were faced with it and the best thing to be able to fight off false teachings. And that is still true for us because we also face false teaching. 
in the church and in the like the secular world around us. So we're not that different from this church at Colossae. We have the same types of false teachings, both within and outside of the church. Um, the best way for us to be women who have good discernment as we walk through our lives when we're faced with falsehoods is to be armed with the truth. We need a deep and robust Christology just like the Colossians did. And that's why we're having you guys do things like all the annotations we have you do in the homework to be able to mark all the things that Christ did because we want you to develop your own theology of Christ that is rich and full and will arm you and make you um, develop and grow into women of discernment. So we're going to close by reading the last three verses of our section, verses 21 and 23, because the things that Paul hopes for the Colossian church is really the same things that we hope for all of you. So let's go ahead and close out. We're going to read 21 through 23 together. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Guys, we hope the same thing for all of you guys here at Providence Road and in this Bible study, that you would continue in the faith and be stable and steadfast and not shift from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So let's pray, and then we'll break into our groups. Dearly Father, <clears throat> this was a lot of information that we took in tonight. I pray that you would um, let each woman in here hear what you want them to hear, what they need to hear. I pray that you would be using the truth that we find in the book of Colossians um, just to mold us and change us more into your image. I pray that we would um, leave here being transformed um, and looking more like you. God, I pray that you would be moving and active during our discussion time and that you would continue to illuminate things to us, help us to have rich and fruitful discussion. And I pray that as we leave our discussion time, that we would um, just get the same um, fruit out of our homework as we do our homework this week. I just pray for the presence and the movement of your spirit throughout this entire study, Lord. We love you and thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.